The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Today, we're in part nine, a new part, uh, the ministry of Christ in and around Perea, and I'll show you uh, on a map where that is. Hopefully, you're familiar with that already just from how often we've shown the map up there. There's three major sections in this part. Today will be principles of discipleship, all in Luke's gospel, uh, except for the very beginning. John tells us kind of the transition into this section of the life of Christ. And then secondly, we'll be raising Lazarus from the dead and a brief tour through Samaria and Galilee. It's interesting, as Jesus gets to the cross and as he gets ready to come down for Passover, he actually leaves Judea, goes back up into Galilee, and then circles back around probably to, to stand or to accompany the pilgrims that were coming from Galilee, where so much of his ministry was, back down for Passover. I'll show you that on the map too. And then also as part of that, Jesus teaching while on his final journey to Jerusalem. I forgot to get my pointer here. Okay, so this is where we are. We just finished up the section from a three-month section where Christ was in Judea, from the Feast of Tabernacles to the Feast of Dedication. Now we're in, in this area, from the Feast of Dedication to the Triumphal Entry. It's a period of about three months as well. Getting very close to uh, Christ's final week, what we call Passion Week. A lot happens in that week, so it'll take us a while to get through that. But um, here's where we are geographically. We just finished the section where he was primarily in Judea. I, I point these sections out, again, just to get you familiar with the the geographical context, he doesn't stay in these areas exclusively. We'll see that in the uh, section on Perea as well. But it just gives you an idea for where he is for the most part. Now, he's going to go to Perea, which is beyond the Jordan, kind of due east of Judea. And who else was prominent beyond the Jordan? Early in our study... John the Baptist. This is where the general area where John the Baptist was as he was baptizing. People were coming out to him to hear his proclamation of repentance, his message of repentance, and his pointing to the Messiah. Uh, from Perea, he's going to come back to Bethany, and that's where the resurrection of Lazarus takes place. It's really an incredible event. You know, Jesus has raised people from the dead a couple of times already, but Lazarus was four days in the grave already. And it really kind of seals the deal in the opposition to Jesus. Uh, they know at this point that they're going to, uh, the Jewish leaders that is, have to do something about him because of his growing popularity. Uh, they're even trying to put Lazarus to death because he's evidence of what Jesus has the capability and the power to do. From Bethany, uh, Christ ends up going to Ephraim. And then from there, he, start, he makes this circuitous journey through Samaria, up into Galilee, and then back down through uh, Decapolis and Perea, all on his final trip back to Jerusalem. Of course, he's going to get there. He's going to stay in Bethany with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he's going to make trips over into Jerusalem, teach during the week of uh, the Passion Week, teach the Olivet Discourse on that Wednesday, and then ultimately, well, observe the Lord's Supper, uh, instigate the Lord's Supper with the Twelve, uh, and then be crucified and resurrected all in that week. So, 
Today we're looking at principles of discipleship, and as, as I said, this is the only section that we'll look at, just a couple of verses in John's Gospel, but it kind of gives us the transition from those three months that we just completed in Judea and, uh, and the move from Jerusalem to Perea. John 10, 40-42, And he, Christ, went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. And many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So it's kind of interesting, as you're getting very close to the end of Christ's public three-and-a-half-year ministry, it's a reflection back that John is the one that really started all this thing. He's the one that proclaimed a baptism of repentance, uh, the nearness of the kingdom, and pointed the way towards the Messiah. Yes, that's right. It's, it's pointing out the fact that everything that John said was true. And, and again, pointing out the fact that John didn't do miracles, but he was the closest in time to Christ himself. And he, his was a powerful ministry because he was actually pointing out who the Messiah was. Okay, now we get into Luke's gospel. And if you don't have a harmony with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 13. Uh, Luke 13 we see this question about salvation entering the kingdom. It seems as if when he first goes over into Perea, there's not that big of a multitude. That's going to change over the three-month time that he's there. There's going to be great multitudes following him, just as there has been in the other places that he's been. But this question is prompted by the fact that, hey, if you're the Messiah, how come everybody's not following you? How come there's not this huge number of people that are following you? So let's start there in Luke 13, beginning verse 22. He was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And this is something he's going to build on as he continues to teach, the fact that the Jewish people really believe that because because they were descendants of Abraham, they were guaranteed entrance into the kingdom just based on their physical descendancy. And he's saying, no, that's not going to be the case. Even that saying, strive to enter by the narrow door, does that recall an earlier teaching by Christ? And where was it? Yes, same kind of language. And it was back in the Sermon on the Mount. So pretty early or much earlier than this is in the ministry of Christ. But again, he's repeating it here. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will, stand, he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. So, again, he's saying you need to, if you're going to enter the kingdom, you've got to start making that commitment and those decisions now because it could come a point where it's going to be too late. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. So even closeness in time to Christ and, and being able to witness his teaching and authority and miracles, it ups the ante as far as accountability goes. But being there and hearing him is not enough. You had to respond to his message. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. Those are all... Old Testament characters, but you yourselves, even this generation of people that heard Christ being cast out. 
and they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. I think he's talking about the nations at that point and the fact that Gentiles will be part of the kingdom. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. So next we move into an anticipation of Christ's coming death and a lament over Jerusalem. Again, this is uh, while he's in Perea, but headed back to Jerusalem at this point. Jesus at that time, uh, I'm sorry, just at that time, some Pharisees came up saying to him, go away and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he's talking about Herod Antipas here. That's a different Herod than the one that was trying to kill Christ at his birth. But Herod Antipas was, uh, part of his territory was both Galilee and Perea. So he's very familiar with Christ because Christ had spent the whole second year and some of the third up into Galilee. And there was a warning here from the Pharisees that Herod was trying to kill him. Now, it may be that they were trying to force him back toward Jerusalem uh, where they would be on their own turf and could have an even stronger opposition against him. He said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day... I reach my goal. Now, that's a little bit of an obscure way to say, hey, I'm on the Father's timetable. I won't be killed a day before I'm supposed to be, and I'll actually be in Jerusalem at the time that it happens by divine decree. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. That's a real shot at the religious leaders in general and their headquarters in Jerusalem. Again, it's pointing up the fact that those very leaders were the same ones who had uh, persecuted not just Christ, but all the prophets beforehand. Uh, they thought they knew what was best, and yet in the process, they were going against the true spokesmen of God. And that prompts his lament over them. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. And, of course, we see a lot of that in the Old Testament, the fact that uh, Israel and Israel's leaders remained in rebellion against God, even though he sent prophets to tell them and to warn them and to call them to repentance, really repentance back to being faithful and keeping the Mosaic Covenant, and yet they stoned them, they killed them, they didn't listen to them. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. What is the house in this case? It's a temple. He's really making an early prediction of the desolation of the temple that will come in 70 A.D. I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, of course, we know that that's something that is still future to us. Uh, even though there's been individual Jews that have recognized Jesus as a Messiah and have come into the church in the present age, there's a time in the future during the tribulation period where they will recognize the nation that's preserved through that tribulation time that Christ is the Messiah. Okay, I said that already. Again, in this case, he knew that his time hadn't come and he was not intimidated by their threat. He's... You've know, you, you got to appreciate the tremendous difficulty that Jesus is going through. I know on the one hand you can say, well, he's God. He's one with God. He, he knows he's carrying out the plan of God. But at the same time, he's facing tremendous opposition from his own people. And he knows that they're laying in wait for him. He knows that they're 
going to kill him and they're going to crucify him. So he's got that going on uh, in his mind through all of this. And to me, it's just it's impressive that he, it doesn't deter him. And, I, you know, I think when he gets to Gethsemane, it's a real struggle. I mean, he knows and the, and the fear there is that he's going to be separated from the father. Uh, but he he really wrestles with it. And he asks the question genuinely. If there's another way for this to happen, please let this pass for me. But he quickly follows that up with, not my will, but thine be done. To me, as you think about what's going through his mind at this point, particularly as he gets closer and closer to the cross, uh, it's just a real appreciation for his commitment to the Father's will and his commitment to us as those that he uh, died to save. Okay, once again, we have a man who's healed on the Sabbath. Uh, we already saw that with the woman that was bent over double just a few weeks ago. Uh, we saw it with a man born blind. They were, they were healed on the Sabbath, as earlier people were in the, in the first and second years of Jesus' ministry. And again, it creates this conflict with the religious leaders. Came about uh, he, when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, that they were washing him closely. And I think it's fair to conclude from that that they were really looking for him to do something, looking for something that they could bring charges against him and have him killed. There in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. Now, I looked up dropsy, uh, it's a disease I'd heard of, but didn't really know what it was, but it's like an inflammation of tissue. Uh, and edema, I think, is the other term that's used for it today. Exactly. That was another way that it was described. So that's what this man had. Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And he, he of course, knew what their answer would be to that. But they kept silent. He took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he... He then turns and uses the same arguments that he used when he healed the woman that was uh, bent over double for some 18 years. He said to them, Which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. The implication being, hey, you're better to your animals than you are to your own uh, kinsmen. He began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. All right, so this is actually going to uh, be the beginning of three important lessons that Christ teaches during this particular discourse. The first one is the importance of humility instead of maneuvering to get places of honor. And this is what he says. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, by the host. And he who invited you both shall come and say to you, give place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, Move up higher, then you'll have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. So, you know, he's using the illustration of being invited to a feast, but I think the principle is one of humility, not maneuvering to take a place of honor. Uh, let your praise be in the mouth of someone else. And it, it makes sense, right? You, you don't take the place of honor and risk having to move to a place of lower importance 
you take the place of lower importance first, and then if you get moved up, that's all the better. All right. Next is uh, a a lesson for the host, the person that's doing the inviting, and, and the importance of impartiality in choosing whom to invite. But uh, for everyone, well, I should have read this before. Everyone who exalts himself should be humbled, and he who humbles himself should be exalted. That's the main lesson of the first uh, lesson. That's the main point of the first lesson. He also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. Now, I don't think the lesson there is that you never invite your friends or family or ones that you love to a feast, but you don't invite with the idea of, hey, I can invite him now and he'll, he'll invite me later and everything will be good and square. No, you would, you're willing to reach out to those that are unloved and don't have friends or family. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Again, the lesson there uh, being you don't do things to gain your own advantage in this life. You do things, and Christ talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount as well, you do things in secret knowing that the Father sees in secret and will repay you later. And then thirdly is the importance of making the kingdom of God the highest priority and not forfeiting the chance to enter that kingdom. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And again, I think their kingdom at this point is, their concept of the kingdom is based on what they knew from the Old Testament prophets. He's, this verse 16, he said to them, A certain man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent a slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land. I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. Now, uh, there is Old Testament teaching on when a man took a wife, he was excused from battle for a year, and he was you know, really supposed to do all that he could to make his household, make his wife happy. But that's not an excuse in this case, not a valid one. The slave came back and reported all this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So I think, again, he's pointedly aiming this at the Jewish nation. They are the ones to whom the invitation went out first. And when they reject him as the Messiah, uh, they reject the opportunity to be in the kingdom, then God turns to the Gentiles particularly in the church. I mean, we know from the Old Testament that was always part of the plan that Israel was to be a witness nation and the Gentiles would come uh, through their witness to recognize 
that he was the true God. But I think this is anticipation of a, a rejection by the nation of Israel and the gospel going out to the Gentiles, and that's exactly what happens. Once they crucify their own Messiah, there's the new entity of the church where the gospel does go directly to the Gentiles, and the Jew and Gentile are on equal footing in the same body. All right, now we come to the cost of discipleship, and as Jesus is in Perea for weeks, his fame begins to grow, and there are many people that uh, start to believe in him, or at least are thinking that he is the Messiah. Uh, and let's see what he responds, how he responds, and see as we read this whether this reminds you of something happened earlier in Jesus' ministry. This is Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. Now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Does that sound, what does it sound like? Now, I know that Matt taught this on this a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. But what is, what is Christ doing here? as he says these things. Okay, he's weeding them out. And when did he do that before? So I'm thinking of another incidence. No, no. Yes. So where is that? John 6. Same kind of situation, right? You've got great multitudes that are following Christ. They believe that he's the Messiah, and they're really following him because they want to keep their bellies full. And in this case, he's saying, look, uh, there's a cost to follow me, and I want you to know about it and count it up front. And he gives the illustrations that follow to help you understand that. And, you know, <clears throat> I think there are people that underplay this, and there's difference of opinion as to how much of this you talk about when you're sharing the gospel with somebody. Uh, I think particularly in our country, there's not that same kind of cost there is. In some parts of the world, it's a very natural thing to have to count the cost because in the same way that it was in Jesus' day, if you embrace Christ as the Messiah, you're going to be cut off from your family. Uh, you know, Some of the Jewish people, when somebody believed in Christ as the Messiah, they considered that person dead. They just didn't have anything to do with them anymore. But that's what he's going to talk about here. And he gives a series of illustrations to, to make that clear. Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. That makes sense, right? We would say the same thing today. If somebody was going to build a house, they laid the foundation, maybe they... Uh, designed a house that was too much for them, and they get halfway through with the building and they have to stop. Uh, and there actually is a situation like that on Corinth Road close to Bracket Church. It wasn't because the guy couldn't didn't have the money, I don't think. It was because he didn't realize he's from another country that he had to have permits to build a house. So he gets halfway up with his framing, and now he's got a bunch of tarps over there because they won't give him the permit to finish. And people look at that and say, well, he should have known. And what Christ is saying, look, there's a cost to follow me. You need to calculate it before you start. Otherwise, you might want to start following, and then you'll stop. And that will bring criticism. 
verse 30, or saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So here's a second illustration. What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Again, that's just common sense, right? If you're going to go to war with somebody, you need to make sure that if you don't have them outnumbered by manpower, you've got them outnumbered by wits and equipment. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So again, it's kind of looking ahead, recognizing what you're doing, and saying, okay, I've got two options. I'm either going to commit to do this and follow through, or I'm going to try to go ahead and make peace with the one that's coming. Kathleen. No, I don't think, it, I don't think these illustrations, at least, include that. I think all he's saying here... And again, if you're in a Muslim context and you're sharing the gospel with somebody, they're going to say, hey, if I believe this, I'm going to be cut off from my family. I very likely will lose my job. And what I would do is take them to this passage and say, you know what? That's right. You will. But what, what if you reject the message? What if you don't embrace Christ? Cost is even higher. So to me, at this point, and especially in this context where these people, or the great multitudes are following him. He just wants to make clear, yeah, you, you like part of me because I can do these miracles, but there's a cost to following me, and I think he's just trying to make that explicit to him. Uh, as far as you know, promising not to commit sin, I don't know that there's anywhere in this. Well, yeah, I think Jesus himself says that. You've got to be willing to do that. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to die, but you've got to be prepared as a follower of Christ. One, you put him above all else, and you, you recognize, hey, if this costs me my relationship with my parents, for example, it's, it's a price I'm willing to pay. In certain contexts, I think you have to, yes. Again, depending on what the context is for the person, you you need you should recognize that this could cost you your life, and and again I I don't see anything in the context that has anything to do with that. Yes, and you're recognizing that that can cost you. Now, <clears throat> obviously, you do want to start uh, dealing with sin in your life, and you do. I think at the moment you. That's where just yes, but at the same time, you don't minimize the fact that Christ is to be your first allegiance, no matter what the cost is. And again, I think I think the reason we have difficulty with this because in this country it's not that way. You, you don't typically, there's some exceptions, but you don't typically fear losing anything in the country that we live in by embracing Christ. There's lots of places where that's not true. And I think oftentimes the person themselves recognize, hey, if I embrace this, you're talking about my life being totally changed in a very negative way. And Christ himself says the same thing. Or to make it, you know, they, they were told that all they had to do was say a prayer uh, particularly as a young child, and then that's it. And there's really nothing that comes after that. And the, yes. 
again, <clears throat> I, I just think, especially in a place where it could cost you these things more, more likely than it will here, then those people need to understand that up front, but they also need to understand that to reject the message is going to cost you even more. Uh, again, I think the context here makes a difference in that these people were following Christ and thought that there was nothing but benefit by doing that. And he's saying, look, there's, there's more than, than just miracles. There's more than just having your uh, food needs met. There's a cost. And in the same way that they're persecuting me and going to oppose me and ultimately kill me, that could happen to you as well. That's right. No matter what the cost is. And I want to change my mind. That's right. And that's happened. I mean, that's what the letter of the Hebrews is all about. You've got Jewish people that initially embraced the message of the gospel. They found out that once they did that, they were going to be persecuted by their own people. And they wanted to go back. They wanted to go back uh, and, and to walk away from Christ and go back to the old practice. Well, again, all those things are true. But in certain contexts, you're also going to have to deal with this may cost me um, my life, it may cost me my family, and I still want to do it. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I agree that some people don't get discipled as much as others, but if you're saved and you, for example, have a desire to read the Word of God, God Himself is going to teach you by the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't different levels of that to be sure but you don't you know god doesn't save people and just leave them where they are yeah i mean the other point is i i certainly don't believe that you know all that you need to know at the point at which you are saved or receive christ uh there's a lot that you're going to learn after that but the very nature of these illustrations is there's a cost that needs to be calculated before you make the initial commitment and you know, I think it goes against the way that we understand witnessing and embracing the gospel, but it's clear that he's doing this to people that are, you know, believing in him at one level. He's just making clear to them there's there's a price to be paid for following him. And I'm not saying there's no price in this country because there is. Andre's given us an example, and there's others. But I think it's even magnified in other places where it's very hard to be a Christian. Let me get Donna. She had her hand up, and now comes Andre. And it's interesting, that example even, people know that it's sin. And now they're, that's right, exactly. I remember talking, exactly. I talked to a guy on an airplane one time, and he, we got to talking about the gospel, and, and he was saying something about very similar, or you're saying then that it's wrong to to run around with different women. I said, yeah. I said, you know it's wrong, otherwise you wouldn't ask about it. Yeah. Eternal life. There is it's going to cost you. That That's it right. That's right. Yeah. He did pay the price for our sins, but that doesn't mean that you don't pay any cost by following him. Okay, let's keep going. And this was actually something that... Uh, Matt referred back to well a couple of weeks ago as the beginning point of a, a series of parables, particularly about money and wealth. 
Um, and he says this in verse 33. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. I would encourage you to, I went back and listened to Matt's message again. I thought it was excellent as far as tying this series of parables together over the next several sections. And this kind of being the beginning point of this. Again, it's not that, that God calls all people that follow him to give up everything they had. Otherwise, you know, that violates the teaching of a lot of scripture. We're to work to provide for our own needs. We're to work to provide for our family. Otherwise, we're worse than a believer. Uh, Proverbs teaches us that to have, you know, some, some things set by is a good thing. But the thing is, at this point, is to recognize that everything that we have is from God. If we lose things because we're willing to stay faithful to God, that's what giving up possessions means. It, it doesn't mean that we hold on to the possessions and give up Christ. I think that's the point here. Therefore, salt is good, but even but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless either for the soil or the manure pile is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So then he begins this series of parables. Let me see. Let me make sure I didn't get... Uh, so he does take advantage of an opportunity to discourage those who had joined the multitude for superficial reasons, like the people that had been fed with the loaves uh, back in John 6. And then he begins this uh, series of parables in defense of associations with sinners. Now, again, he's very going very much against the grain at this point with the Pharisees because for them to associate with sinners made them unclean, and they, they didn't like the fact that Jesus was doing it. Uh, they lacked the love for these people that Jesus obviously had and that drew sinners to Christ. So let's read some of this in Luke 15. All the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. He told them the parable, saying, and so I'm not going to read all this because, I, again, I would refer you back to Matt's message on the website. Uh, but he gives a series of parables here. What's the common uh, idea in each of the first three parables? The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. That's right. So something that was lost, that was found, the person that lost this particular thing was willing to uh, search very hard for it, even leaving the sheep that weren't lost to find the sheep. And it's a demonstration of God's love and his care for those that are lost. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents against you know 99 that need no repentance. I think particularly the parable of the prodigal son as the lost son had a punch at the end for the Pharisees. The older brother is actually representative of the Pharisees, right? He didn't rejoice the, over the fact that his son had come to his senses, returned back home. He was envious. And uh, the parable, I think, is pointed at the Pharisees in that they weren't caring about their own fellow Jews and, and those who needed to know Christ and needed to salvation. They were just, you know, critical of Christ for even associate, associating with those people. So, also, we're not going to read Luke 16, 1 to 13, because that's the passage that Matt explicitly addressed. A lot of what he did was tying that section to the previous parables, 
But again, I think he did a really good job with that, and I would point you back to the website on that. The main point, though, of that parable, well, a couple of main points. One is, in the case of the unjust steward, he recognized that a judgment was coming, and he acted accordingly to <clears throat> make provision for himself. In other words, he reduced what each one of those people owed his master so that they would receive him after he's kicked out of the stewardship. In the same way, uh, that's something that we do too when we're confronted with the gospel, right? Is to understand, recognize that a judgment is coming and we respond accordingly. We embrace Christ. Um, here, it's particularly dealing with, the, with money. And we don't make money, even though money is very strong temptation for every one of us, I would argue, believer and unbeliever. Uh, Paul says that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And it's something we have to grapple with over the course of our lives. We, too, are stewards of whatever God has entrusted to us. And we all come into life differently. We all have different opportunities and talents over the course of our life. But we're responsible for how we steward all of that. We'll have to give an account for it. So in this case, it's a recognition that money can be used not only for your own needs, but also be a blessing to others. And it's an encouragement towards doing that, towards being generous with others and not just hoarding money for yourself. So that leads to another parable, um, particularly because of the Pharisees' response to what Jesus had just taught about wealth. They obviously thought uh, that money and their own richness was a result of God's blessing. So let's pick that up at Luke 16, verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. They were mocking him, if you will. They didn't believe what he was saying about money. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And, of course, we've seen that throughout our study, right, with the Pharisees. They love to be recognized by men. They love to perform their acts of righteousness before men. And they thought that they had genuine piety. A lot of the people thought they had piety. But what Christ is telling them is, no, your heart's not right. You're all about the externals, and you don't have a heart that's right with God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, he's talking about John the Baptist, since then the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Again, that was something that the Pharisees had differences about. But he's really, I think, going after their teaching on that and how it's different from what the Word of God teaches. And then he tells another parable, the parable of the rich man Lazarus. There was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. A certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died. He was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now I would uh, 
without a lot of solid evidence, frankly. I would contend that that was the good side of Sheol, where Abraham was, and where the righteous went, uh, Old Testament saints, uh, before Christ was resurrected. They went to a place of blessing. There's another side of Hades, or Sheol, that where the unrighteous went, which was a place of torment. It's not the eternal place of torment, because that's a lake of fire. And they don't go into that until the very end. But once Christ rose from the dead, those who were in the good side of Hades uh, went up to be in heaven. That's where they are now. But in this parable, that hasn't happened yet. So Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham in the good side of Hades. And in Hades, he lifted up, I'm sorry, it came about that the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, the rich man did, being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of the, his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here, and you're in agony. Besides all this, between us there is a great chasm chasm, sorry, fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Then he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let, him, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead, which turns out to be exactly the case, right? Even after Christ rises from the dead and the message goes out to Jewish people all across the Roman Empire, still many of them don't believe. Again, he speaks to the Pharisees in all of this and lie of their persuasion that their riches came about as a result of their carefully keeping the law, but their external observances did not please God. Their uh, man-made traditions and their adding to the scripture, their own teaching, uh, was an offense to God. The story of the rich man Lazarus clearly illustrates that riches were not necessarily a sign of God's favor. Riches in this life are not necessarily a sign of God's favor. Now, sometimes they are. You know, we like I said before, you don't choose the situation that you're born into. You have no control over that. But God, and this is a teaching from Ecclesiastes. God gives people different portions, and they can use that to be a blessing to others. They can hoard that and, and be a detriment to themselves. But you've got to be a faithful steward of what God entrusts to you. That's something that's taught consistently by Christ and Ecclesiastes. All right, we'll close with four lessons on discipleship, uh, and we'll just run through these quickly. First is the warning against causing others to sin. This is in verses 1 and 2 of Luke 17. He said to his disciples, It's inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, he were thrown into the sea, than he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. So again, just a very strong warning. You don't want to have a millstone on your neck and thrown in the sea. That would be a hard way to die as well. 
but you don't want to cause others to sin, and that's the purpose of this warning. Secondly, forgiving a repentant brother. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Of course, in other places, the basis of our being able to do that is because God has forgiven us so much. Thirdly, the power of faith. Even a little faith goes a long way. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, which was the tiniest of all the seeds uh, that were known at that time, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. But which of you... Sorry, let's see. That's, that's the lesson on faith. And it's not that it takes a huge quantity of faith, but you do have to have faith. And you've got to, again, trust what God says and be obedient to Him. And then finally, the insufficiency of works to gain special honor. This is in verses 7 through 10. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. That's just the nature of the way that it worked. You know, the master was to be waited on first, and you shouldn't expect otherwise. He does not think, thank the slave because he did these things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all these things, that is when you do what God calls you to do, when you obey him, when you serve, when you do good works, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. Again, that makes sense in light of what we've talked about this morning, the fact that we've been bought with a price. We belong to God. We don't do works thinking that somehow when we do them, our merit with God increases. We do them because of what God has already done for us, and we do them as his slaves. I know that slavery is not a, <clears throat> a, a particularly enjoyable thing to think about, but the Bible doesn't shy away from using it as an analogy of our relationship to Christ. And even slavery can be a good thing if you've got a good master. We've got the best master. And to think of ourselves, think of ourselves as slaves of God, slaves of Christ, uh, it doesn't get any better than that. That's the way we should regard ourselves. We do what we do. We only do what we should do as his people. We're not just slaves. We're also his friends and his sons and daughters. So slaves is, is a way that our relationship is described in some places, but we're also more than slaves. Okay, so that's the first section of Christ's ministry in and around Perea. We'll look at part two next week, and uh, we'll just work our way through this section over the next several weeks. And then after this is when we'll hit Passion Week, starting with a triumphal entry. Okay, let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we recognize that we are worthless slaves, certainly worthless before you redeemed us, uh, sinners in rebellion against you, and yet your love and your grace and mercy drew us to you. We heard the gospel. We recognize 
how it was relevant and applicable to our own situation, and we responded in faith. And we recognize that we still stumble in many ways, and yet our desire is to please you. Our desire is to understand that you are the ultimate master, uh, that to be your slave is, a, is really a place of privilege. And we want to do that. We want to do it faithfully. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and abide until faithfully until Christ comes. So as we've talked about a lot this morning, I pray that that would be something that's on our mind in the proper way, uh, certainly anticipating the return of Christ, but being faithful in the meantime to the responsibilities that you've entrusted to each one of us. I pray that as we go out uh, to our different places that today and this coming week, that you would uh, help us to be faithful and help us to honor you in all things. We pray all of this. In